Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer podcast brought to you from the Granite Podcast Studio in the heart of Newry City. We are delighted that you could join us at Activist Lawyer, a new podcast and online forum where we will be discussing all sorts of matters, including current issues as they unfold. We'll be engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts and invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at www.activistlawyer.com as we want your perspective as we unravel and unpack so many important topics. So hello everybody. Again, I'm joined by our lovely Jessica, who has again been flat out working on the hashtag choose to challenge. So you can check out our activistlawyer.com blog and our social media channels. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter to find out how that's been going. It's been really exciting um, buzz around the office and we, we actually got cake didn't we? We did yeah. um, shout out to Jack he's been kicked off the show this month um, and I'm replacing but he will be back shortly. He'll be back He's but he has been looking after us all and um, sweetening us up with cake with lots of cake to celebrate <laughs> the festivities around International Women's Day taking part in lots of webinars, learning loads, all of us have been so it's been fantastic there's been millions of events going on really great resources um, throughout the month so fantastic now we have had uh, Irish examiner, political correspondent Aoife Moore on the show. You'll hear that recording today. She discusses primarily women in the media. But as you'll hear, Aoife openly chats about her own experiences as a young woman journalist trying to make it in a really cutthroat industry. I, I don't know how she does it. Uh, we think she's doing a fantastic job, really pretty great. Um, and Aoife has been in high demand for <laughs> International Women's Day events for 2021. Well, because she's great, but also because there aren't that many of her, you know, women political correspondents mm-hmm. at her level. So we learned a lot about underrepresentation within particular industries the last few weeks. Um, you know, minority groups aren't represented. Women are not represented. And, you know, of course, women make up the majority of society and we live in a very diverse society. So Aoife really puts forward this message about true representation and the media must reflect, you know, our diverse society on every level. You know, where are the black Irish correspondents? Where are all the women? So these are the themes that she goes through and she's extremely lively and (laughs) uplifting as well. So we hope you enjoy listening to Aoife. Enjoy. Thanks. Bye. Aoife, thank you so much for joining us to help celebrate International Women's Day 2021. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Not at all. So it's great to have your perspective, both, I suppose, the issue that we're covering today, primarily women in the media and also looking at you and your career in, in political journalism. But it's something that's come up in the media um, very much um, in recent days. Uh, recent weeks, sorry, and I've been just following some of the press coverage about it and I thought it'd be really interesting to get someone on to talk about their experience and their perspective on it. So um, it's great to have your your angle for some, someone who works right there in the thick of it. But just to kind of give us a little bit of a flavour and a bit of background for our listeners, how did you get into journalism, Aoife? Just a wee bit um, about your journey. So, like, as you said, I'm born and reared um, in Derry City and during the peace process, which I think had a massive kind of effect on my upbringing. Mm-hmm. So my, I'm one of the Bloody Sunday family. My uncle was shot and killed on Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. And my family were one of the founding families of the Bloody Sunday Justice Campaign. Mm-hmm. 
and I think that really molded kind of my life um, yeah. for better or for worse. Um, we were always at you know press press conferences and, and protests, and there was always you know journalists hanging around when it came to the anniversary in January and my parents, my dad especially, even though it wasn't his side of the family, my dad um, is obsessed with the news we always had to have the news on at 6 o'clock every night in New TV we always had the papers in the house Mm -hmm. and it was always impressed on us um, from a young age how important the media was in terms of putting pressure on the British government to reopen the bodies on the inquiry Yes. And, you know, it was actually when, you know, we were going to the Savile Inquiry and stuff, we were, it was often remarked upon, you know, that journalists were there as witnesses and took photos and without them, God knows um, yeah. where we would be considering, you know, the whitewash that they attempted, Absolutely. even though there were journalists there. So imagine what they would have attempted <laughs> if journalists hadn't been there. Mm-hmm. Um, I always was quite politically aware um, as I was growing up and then I was a bit of a nightmare at school to be honest but um, it said alright and then decided when I was like 16 that I wanted to be a journalist um, the school really wanted everybody to become a doctor or solicitor yes. and it just wasn't for me so I went to Glasgow for university and then I have honestly just taking every single unglamorous job <laughs> that I could get. I mean, I have had the weirdest jobs. I was once the chief reporter for a magazine about trucks and lorry. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, like I would have talked anything and done anything to be a journalist. Yeah. Um, and then came back to uh, Dublin like three and a half years ago. And I've been here ever since and I've been at the examiner now for just a year and a week, so just past my um, year anniversary there. Wow, congratulations. That's fantastic. <laughs> so really, I, I guess from a young age then, your environment and, of course, led by the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign really shaped your future, so to speak, and you, you stuck with that. And I guess in that you saw how families could access justice, perhaps via the media. So mm-hmm. it's an important, a very important, crucial medium in, in many respects that people don't often think about. And there often is this image of a journalist and a correspondent, you know, this glamorous job. Mm-hmm. But as you say, the road to it. And even now, I'm sure you're working very <laughs> unsociable hours. <laughs> I'm not wearing very glamorous outfits at the moment, let me tell you. It's a lot of uh, train journeys and tracks and bottoms. Yeah. And you're on the go 24 hours sometimes I'd it, imagine it ne- if, yeah, yeah it never stops especially in politics now in COVID you know you could be yeah. stories break at half 11 at night and half 7 in the morning it's, it's, wow. it is just it's non-stop so you cover really difficult stories obviously Aoife, and also tragic stories like the Stardust tragedy which I've um, been following for quite some time now for people who don't know the Stardust fire it was a fatal fire which took place in a nightclub in Artane in Dublin called um, the Stardust Ar- it was in Ireland in on the 14th of February 1981 uh, so Aoife and lo- lots of journalists have been covering that in detail now and also you know the recent breaking news stories around mother and baby homes in Ireland again in all of these matters you're dealing with victims relatives survivors and families they're very ordinary people whom tragedy was visited on. They did not do anything to deserve this. 
tragedy came to them mm-hmm. and for years they had just been banging against the door of government trying to get some answers to what happened to their loved ones mm-hmm. and it really struck me that there were so many similarities between the Stardust and the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign and I think that's why I got involved, so yeah. involved with it and the longer it goes on I actually have to say the more emotional it mm-hmm. gets because mm-hmm. we're at the stage now where a lot of the parents of young people who died in that fire are now dying. Yeah. You know, we had Christine Keegan die last year. She has her two daughters died and she was, you know, one of the main campaigners, her and her husband John, who's also dead for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then we had Eugene Kelly died last year as well. Yeah. I know Dara Mackin's actually been on this podcast talking about it as well. Yeah, so Dara was it's on, actually got yeah. And even he, like, got, not even he, but you could see anybody involved. It just really, you can see the emotion and how it impacts them um, on so many yeah, levels. You, how could it not? It's the unfairness of it all. Yeah. You know what I mean? These are people who are just normal working people on the mm-hmm. thing that sticks out the most. And if you ask anyone in Dublin, they will tell you this, that the reason these people were pushed aside is because of where they love and mm-hmm. what society thought of where they live. Mm-hmm. These were working people yeah. who did not go have private education, who did not have big jobs. They were just working ordinary people. And, you know, yeah. the area where the startup uh, was was an area called Bonnybrook. And yeah, obviously everyone knows the really posh part of Dublin is called Donnybrook. And there's a saying in Dublin about the startup that if the startup happened in Donnybrook and rather than Bonnybrook, they would have had answers a long time ago. Right. And, they really believe that it's a sense of unfairness so that and along with the mother and baby home mm-hmm. like the mother and baby home is one of those things that it's just another chapter in a really long book about yeah. classism and sexism in Ireland mm-hmm. you know like the only currency they seem to deal in was shame and guilt and reading the mother and baby home's report we got an embargo copy at 8 in the morning right. you couldn't copy and paste you couldn't control F. You had to read every line and go through every line. You couldn't split it up between journals. We only got one copy. Sure. So I sat from 8 o'clock in the morning to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's, you know, 10,000 pages. It's incredibly long. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to get up and walk away twice because I was starting to cry because yeah. it just gets it's too much. much it, it, at times, yeah, it really it's is. testimony of, I can't explain it as anything else, but torture torture a pregnant woman, torture children Absolutely. and it's 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 rough going and you would be you'd have to be made of stone <laughs> you, you <laughs> not would. to cry when you're reading it, to be honest. Yeah. I mean But it, I think a lot of a lot of it comes with compartmentalizing it. You have to be able to get up and walk away. But I can openly say this and I work with another really talented female journalist, Elaine Lachlan, who's done mammoth work mm-hmm. on the mother and baby homes and even we both said that neither of us slept that week like slept properly there was nightmares we weren't sleeping mm-hmm. because of what we read on it and we're just reading it so I can't imagine what it was like to have to live through it and then go back and provide that testimony to your community. It's so difficult it really is and I guess that's, it's another example I suppose of how the media and it is whatever media you look at whether it's social media digital print the press coverage on RTE um, I know there was the, the Joe Duffy show at one point had really revealed you know the testimonies from people and it was really hard hitting and mm-hmm. got the stories out there where 
maybe people were hearing it for the first time, the real detail around this with 13 year old girls, 14 year old rape, everything that went on. So again, it's the media was really the the responsible for, or not responsible, but had shared those stories and has been so far reaching um, in a really positive way. But you're right, I think it's hard hitting. It's You'd have to be made of stone. So just you have mentioned um, one of the challenges you faced, um, among others, was the fact that you're a woman, a young woman in this role in political, especially as a political correspondent. I'd imagine there there's not too many or am I am I wrong? Are you among a very no, select few? Full time, I think. Full time political correspondent, female political correspondent. I think there's maybe six of us. Mm-hmm. Um, six. And six. There could be 20, at least 20 men, to right. be honest, when you think about it. So we're definitely in the in, in the minority. In the minority, and they're just the Irish Examiner had covered an article. It was uh, Margaret E. Ward had contributed to it. Um, I think it was earlier on this year, maybe f- f- uh, last month in February. But it was just interesting in that um, one of the quotes was that women make up fewer than one third of Irish media professionals, even less at top level. So the question was, how can the industry report on society if it doesn't reflect it? And I think that's a really valid question. So is there a problem in the industry, IFA? And I mean, have you experienced it? I know you talked a little bit briefly about your own challenges, but is it a general problem and what's being done to tackle it? And do you notice it? Yes, definitely. It is a problem. Um, you find when you go into the newsroom, reporters mm-hmm. at the lower levels, it tends to be pretty gender split. There tends to be a lot of young women. Mm-hmm. And as the further you go up, um, there becomes less and less women at higher roles. Um, the gender disparity becomes quite stark. Um, I think I've had one female editor um, in my entire life. I think I've worked at maybe 10, 11 different publications. Wow. Um, so there aren't. Um, I know the journal has uh, a number of female editors. Um, I can't think of any other newspapers that do. The Irish Times has only ever had two female political correspondents. Um, so it's definitely um, the gender disparity is quite stark. Mm-hmm. And I think the issues kind of, you could start out as a reporter and you could be great, but it's when issues start to arise like, you know, men are more likely to get promoted. Yeah. Um, There's also issues that the work is non-stop. It's not conducive to a regular routine. If you have children, and we know that women are more likely to be lumbered with childcare and responsibilities and caring for elderly parents or elderly family. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a routine that you can stick to, that's when it causes issues. So you will often find the female journalists will move into things like marketing or public relations because they know that they're going to get, first of all, they're going to get better money. <laughs> and it's a 95 or a 10 to 6 or whatever you want. And it's more conducive to um, a, like a nuclear family lifestyle. Also, there are issues within certain uh, broadcasters with contract for instance something like a roll in three month contract right how are you supposed to go on maternity leave we know yeah. that the, the bbc and rt use roll in contracts they have you know presenters that you might see i know for instance in the bbc presenters you might see every night correspondence 
every night that you would assume as a member of staff and you find that they aren't, that they're on, they're self-employed, they're a contractor. There's no sick pay for that. There's no paternity pay for that. And it only fits men. Exactly. So these are all the issues that come with the kind of employment side of it. The other mm-hmm. side of it is it's just harder to be a woman in journalism. Uh, women in general are less trusted by men. Men tend to be in powerful positions, whether they're politicians, whether they're CEOs, whether they're the senior councils. So it's easier for men to build up their contacts because they're usually talking to other men. And I wonder um, if that's probably yeah. reflected across many industries. But yeah, I see how you uh, in particular would have to forge. It's so important for you to forge those relationships. Yet that's another barrier that you face. And I guess you have to be creative all the time in order to figure out, well, how am I going to form that relationship? How am I going to be able to cover that piece as well as my male counterpart or better than? You know, so it really it's your your mind has to be switched on on another level all the time compared to your it's something is it's something as stupid as like my colleague he was able to forge a relationship with the Taoiseach um, by making small talk about Cork City Football Club ah. um, you know they talk about football they talk about GAA yes. I am not going to embarrass myself <laughs> by pretending to talk that I know about GAA or any football team outside of Celtic because my boyfriend is shit with them so <laughs> Like that kind of thing, even the notion of being able to go up to any politician and just talk about something like football yeah. um, is not an avenue that's open to me. I it's mean, not. I'm sure I could study football if I wanted, <laughs> if I really needed the small talk, but I just don't have the time or the energy. No. So things like that. But if there is another side of it. And I think life will get easier for political female political correspondents when there are more female politicians. Like I would have much better relationships with female politicians, I did a long run yeah. series about sexual harassment and I spoke to a number of female TVs that I know for a fact mm-hmm. would only tell me about their experiences because I was a woman. A woman. If one of my yeah. male colleagues came to, me, came to them and said, tell me about all the times you were sexually harassed, they would probably just say, I couldn't think of anything worse <laughs> to tell a man about all the times I was sexually harassed. So it works in both ways, but all the issues that we see with female political correspondents are the same issues that face female politicians. Yes. You know, politics is a male-dominated game. Uh, community politics, grassroots politics is, you know, it's not conducive if you have young children, if you're caring for elderly parents, you know, it's hard to juggle these things if you have to go to meetings, stuff like that. So, and also barriers with, for instance, in Dublin, politicians don't get maternity leave they don't get maternity pay there is a cabinet minister the minister for justice is now pregnant and the government of ireland in 2021 is trying to work out how to pay her maternity leave i saw that (laughs) helen mcintyre i saw the coverage Mm -hmm. that it is absolutely shocking that that was i saw it highlighted previously but now that it's something that's come to the fore because somebody's actually experiencing it you're sitting going oh my goodness how can this be in reality and as you said you do have I suppose an intersection a link there between journalism and politics because of the issues that you cover and the people you're speaking to and 
you're right that there is a similarity in that um, women face similar barriers. And I know Senator Ivana Bacic had been really at the fore of trying to, I suppose, involve women in politics, but really to try and break down the barriers that stop them from considering it in the first place. And she had highlighted these five C's, the confidence, cash, culture, childcare and candidate selection around the group Mm -hmm. women for election. So it really, you can really see how women perhaps leave their role when it gets to a more senior level um, because of those issues and because they're primarily dealing with, you know, childcare matters that they have to tend to. Um, And it's not just women, it's women and minorities as well, trying to encourage um, entry into the media and into politics as well. But I wonder, are the figures worse now because of COVID? The pandemic seems to have really highlighted raw issues um, and acted as a catalyst almost to highlight barriers that women face and the suffering that women face. And I wonder, has the media been impacted in that way? in terms of both what it covers and the representation there within the media? I think because we're still very much in the throes of COVID, we probably won't know Mm. until after the fact. But what I would be concerned about, and I've been thinking about this for a while, is that we already know that COVID is exacerbating all the issues that affect women already and Mm. making them worse. So we know that the bulk of um, employment losses, for instance, our, our woman, you know, in the yeah. hospitality industry, that is a very female-dominated industry. Those jobs have been lost. A lot of them are not coming back. Absolutely. Stuff like that. You know, when recessions hit, it is women that bear you the brunt exactly. of it. Yeah. And that's what I would worry about. And without more women in the media, they tell those stories. Those, those stories will be totally forgotten about. And I think, you know, it's quite clear, if we even go back to the mother and baby homes, you know, we can say, oh, it's great because the media was able to highlight all this. But we have to remember that the media was operating when these mother and baby homes were operating and the media paid absolutely no attention to what was happening in the mother and baby homes. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is like, if you can't see it, if you can't see it, and if you don't know about these things because of your circumstances, you're not going to report on them. Like, for instance, I did a story about, um, I did a special report about the harassment single mothers on the lone parent payment by social welfare inspectors in, in the Republic. And these women had the most horrific stories about social welfare inspectors going through their knicker drawers, sitting outside their house, because if you're found to have a boyfriend or a living partner, they take your single parent payment away from you. And they have inspectors that come out to your house to make sure you don't have a boyfriend. Wow. Now, you know, the Department of Social Protection said, oh, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And if anyone has a complaint, you can make a complaint. The story ran over a couple of days and a TD came to me. Um, he's from, he's working class. He's from the north inner city of Dublin. And he said to me, I have been afraid of the social welfare inspector my entire life. And I never thought once to go to a journalist and explain that this was happening. Yeah. And he said, I never thought I would see anything like this in a newspaper. And I said, well, there probably hasn't really been anybody around or willing to publish stories about social welfare inspectors because it wouldn't even be on their radar. You know, the press for all the greatest stories is very middle class as well. So stories like this aren't getting done because there's just no one different on there. And I think 
the press is only going to get better the more diverse it gets. Absolutely. Because I don't expect people who have gone to private school and have had a no interaction with the Department of Social Protection ever in their life. Yeah. You know about this because how, how would they? Nobody benefits from, I mean, that, I suppose, silencing or failure to, to share these stories. And I guess the what happens in good coverage and good exposure of stories like this, it can help shape important policies, you know, when you're able to um, voice those concerns that are often, you know, ignored and those voices that are often ignored. So you can probably see that coming together if you've been contacted by somebody like that and political representatives then that take it on. It's, you can see the link there and how important and valued that is. And I think too, just, we just benefit when, when our politics and when our media just looks like the population. Yeah. You know, the journalism, and I'm the first, I never saw banging on about this, <laughs> but journalism is the whitest place in Dublin, yeah. you know, there are no journalists of colour working in the mainstream media that I know of. There are no, the only, you know, person of colour in the doll is, is Leo Varadkar. There should be 13% of the doll mm. should be people of colour because that would be representative of the Republic and it's just not. And, you know, journalism is exactly the same. So we are missing out huge chunks of news because we are not representing the entire nation. I mean, half the population women, 51%, are not represented. But this figure grows much higher when you're not including, as you said, minority and ethnic groups as well, which does make mm-hmm. up. And I mean, it, it's just beneficial to everybody. And I suppose, I mean, how do we hold the media to account? Other industries, I suppose, have adopted policies and measures. And I think it's fair to say that there is some movement there. There's fantastic organisations and lobby groups that are pushing these matters onto the agenda. Like I think you'd mentioned but just before we went on um, recording, Why Not Her, Women for Elections, Women on Air is another one, I think. But mm-hmm. um, it's important to keep this high on the agenda because under, other industries have worked through issues that they face around having a more diverse workplace and a representation that reflects society. So I guess there is still that call there from campaigners, lobbyists, people like yourself, women within the industry as well, to ensure that this doesn't, you know, move from the table and that equality is something that the industry aspires to. I wonder how it's it's best to do that. I think it's quite funny as well that the media will look everywhere apart from themselves. (laughs) You'll see, you know, stories about, you know... Only twenty eight. This is this is completely hypothetical, but there'll be a story saying only twenty eight percent of people in STEM are women, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's terrible!" And you know for a fact it's the newsroom that that story was written, and it's probably twenty nine percent women. So, like, it is one of these things that they'll look everywhere else other than themselves. Yeah. We do see we are starting to see changes, but it's change for changes. It's more social embarrassment than anything yes. else. TV programs and radio programs are incredibly worried about mm-hmm. people giving them flack online for having, you know, all men on a panel. Yeah. And they haven't actually realised the times when they're saying the quiet part out loud. So I cannot tell you the amount of times that a producer or a researcher from a radio program or a TV program will say to me, "We would love to have you on because we need a woman." They say, they say that out loud. And I'm dying to be like, you know, that's the quiet part. You're not supposed to say that. Because basically what they're saying is, we actually could take our lady, but we need you because you're a woman. 
Yeah. And that's not gender equality. It absolutely You know what not. I mean? Well, nobody, no industry should be beyond, be beyond scrutiny. And I think the media has a, a long a long journey to go, you know, to get on a, a par. And I know there is some movement. I know some programmes itself are looking at 50-50 gender equality, but really there needs to be much more done. So it's it's great to have you highlighting some of the, I suppose, the personal challenges that you face, but also with a whole, this really, you know, opens up our eyes to the, the picture of women in the media in, in Ireland, and I guess, across the board, not just in Ireland. And it fits in, I guess, with our Choose to Challenge um, theme. It's not our theme. It's the theme of International Women's Day 2021. Um, It's the hashtag. And you're probably going to be involved in so much over the next few days it's the, I am going to be the women everywhere yeah. I am on every film <laughs> as the woman in the media and, and here you are another woman <laughs> another woman in the media well we're glad that you were able to join us in, in among your busy schedule but just on that we're asking all of our guests and we've had some fantastic guests so far and we look forward to more recordings uh, later this week but what does it mean to you and how do you interpret choose to challenge I think just calling stuff out when you see it and also kind of correcting yourself. Um, I try, well, I have been trying, but I'm not very good at it. (laughs) People say, act like a man at work. So I used to say things like, if a headline was wrong and I was contacting the desk, I would say, hi, listen, I'm really sorry about this, but could you change this headline if it's not too much trouble? Because it doesn't really reflect the content in the article. Um, No worries uh, if you can't. Thanks very much. And all this kind of (laughs) apologising for taking kind of, you know, asserting yourself. Yeah. So now I'm trying to be like, not rude in any way, shape or form, just saying, hiya, can I get this headline changed because it's not reflective of the content. Thanks. You know, you don't need to apologise for asking for stuff and just being a bit more forthright, like not doubting yourself. I find like my first instinct is when I'm doing something, if someone questions it, I always assume automatically that I'm wrong and the person isn't wrong, even though I know I, you know, covered all my bases or whatever. Is it a form of imposter syndrome? Probably. But let me tell you, there are a lot of men working in journalism who do not have one iota (laughs) (laughs) And I wish I could half it and share it out with some people because I believe some people could do with a dose of it. Yeah. But um, there is is that confidence and and ego piece as well, I guess, you know. Um, Totally. And like men never, you know, a lot of men don't feel the need to question themselves because they just. um, that they're right and they're no be- they know better and I think yeah. social media is where people really show who they are you know often you'll see journalists arguing with strangers on Twitter who disagree with them and it brings everybody down and I think sometimes you just need to be able to say listen everybody's entitled to their own opinion and I don't really need to get dragged into this but I think yeah. it tells you a lot about the person if they're choosing to spend their time arguing with people on Twitter about the content of their article or their column or mm-hmm. whatever else it is. Um, so yeah, maybe I think my challenge thing is just to uh, be a bit more assertive. Assertive. <laughs> and that's, I mean, for aspiring journalists listening to this, that is such honest and great advice and I think just the insight into your work there in, journa- in, in journalism, in political journalism in particular, 
has really shed a light on the reality of it. It's just been fantastic to have you on and I really look forward to speaking to you again and also following your work. Um, I wish you the best of luck with current uh, pieces that you're covering at the moment and we'll be back in touch, I hope, someday. Thank you so much. This is lovely. Thank you. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.